Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. So I have been searching for a clean electrolyte company that I love for a really long time, and I just hadn't found anything that I liked, that I enjoyed the taste of, that I felt good about the ingredients, until I found Element. And I actually got a sample from somebody, and I was instantly hooked. They have really good flavors. They're actually tasty. Like, I enjoy drinking them, whereas other brands that I've tried in the past I really haven't enjoyed. And you can just put them straight into your water, um, and they're so good. So they have salt, magnesium, and potassium potassium in them. And a lot of people don't realize how important electrolytes are for true hydration. A lot of us are chugging water because we're being told that we need more water, but we don't, we're not drinking the electrolytes that we need to actually hydrate our bodies. And so Element is a great choice. They also make seasonal chocolate flavors that are really good as like a hot chocolate. And you can put them in your coffee if you want, or just with hot water and like milk or just plain. I like to drink them plain. I love Element. I have at least one pack a day. Electrolytes are so important, especially for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So if you're lacking your electrolytes, give Element a try. You can use my link, Drink Element. It's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. And you will get a free gift with your purchase, which is a sample pack. So you can try all of the flavors. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. Hello, everyone. I am so excited today to have Ashley Mariani here with me to talk about a topic that I get asked about all the time, and that is intimacy while co-sleeping or while bed sharing. So we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about how to find time and space to be intimate with your partner, but we're going to be talking about a lot more than that. So um, we're going to be chatting about what intimacy is because it doesn't only involve sex. Um, We're going to be talking about intimacy challenges that often come after having a baby and how to navigate those and how to be more vulnerable with your partner. This is an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to Ashley for joining me for it. So who is Ashley? Ashley is a clinical social worker specializing in the intersection of perinatal mental health, sex, and intimacy. She's also a birth rights advocate and mother of three. Ashley did her undergraduate degree in sexuality and her master's in social work. She completed the PSI Advanced Clinical Training in Maternal Mental Health and continues to implement an evidence-based approach. Ashley uses components of polyvagal theory and neurobiology to help couples transform their relationships with love, sex, and intimacy after baby. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, You're just really knowledgeable about this topic, and this is a big topic that 
I get asked about all the time. And that is how do you foster um, intimacy with your partner, with your significant other, especially when you're co-sleeping or bed sharing? Um, and so we're going to dive into that topic today. So first, can you just briefly introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Mm, yes. So my name is Ashley Mariani. Uh, thank you for having me on here. Uh, we've done this once before and it was so much fun. And so I'm glad you asked me to do it again. Um, I am the owner of what is right now called Mind Online Therapy, but that could change. I am planning on rebranding. So I like to put it out there. Um, and so my practice is completely online. Before people were operating solely online for the last two years, it was already online, which I find to be more accessible for the general public. Um, not everybody, but some people. Uh, so I'm a clinical social worker at Mind Online, and I work primarily with perinatal couples in their mental health intersectioned with their intimacy postpartum mostly. Um, so I have a undergraduate degree uh, in sexuality and a master's degree in social work and a bunch of other little doohickey ticket certifications in there in between. Um, I did do training through PSI uh, for perinatal mental health and maternal mental health. So uh, I really enjoy working with postpartum couples and um, having three children of my own, not only do I have professional experience, but I have lived experience as well. Which is always helpful, right? <laughs> Especially yeah. in this, in this area. So can you just kind of explain to us what is intimacy? Like, cause I know that might be, that might sound like a dumb question, but I have learned so much from you and it's not just about having sex with your significant other, right? It's about so much more than that. And so can you explain to us kind of what is intimacy and why do a lot of couples um, struggle with it after having a baby? Mm. I think <clears throat> intimacy is, I, I mean, obviously there's a, a Webster definition of what intimacy is. And I'm, I mean, not, I can't pull it up off the top of my head, but I'm guessing it, the Webster definition probably has to do with closeness and safety and connectedness and vulnerability and asking a couple what their definition of intimacy is can be a great starting point because if one of the individuals is saying we're not intimate anymore and the other person is saying what do you mean like we played euchre last night together I thought that was pretty intimate um, and what the, what the, what the partner A is, is trying to communicate is that we didn't have sex. We haven't had sex in the last two, two weeks. And partner B is feeling like, okay, well, sex isn't necessarily intimacy for me. Having vulnerable conversations and being in each other's space and being vulnerable with each other, that's intimacy for me. So I think first and foremost, it really depends on the individuals who you're talking to, which is why as a therapist, it's really important for me to sit down and say, there are some topics that um, have words thrown around, words like communicate, words like love, words like intimacy, even words like sex. What does sex mean? So if we're, we need to just like break down words to figure out what happened in your life? What, where did you begin to find meaning in a particular word that led you to this point in your life? 
that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's really important too, especially when we're talking about the postpartum period. And that's something that's been so helpful with me and my husband, because it is like you said, what is intimacy to each of us? Because it means different things to us. And I know, especially so many mothers who might be breastfeeding, who might be bed sharing, feel so touched out. And I guess we'll just dive into this, this kind of topic now. Um, we feel so touched out. Right. And we don't, we don't want to be touched anymore. Like we're touched all day. We're needed all day. We want a lot of us. I'm not speaking for everybody, but I know that this is true for a lot of moms. We don't want anybody touching our body anymore. Like when our husbands get home or our partners get home, like we just want them to go away, um, or just not touch us. And so I think that is an issue for a lot of couples who maybe were very, very physical before having children. Um, and now maybe the woman is feeling like I just need, I need a break from that. What would you say to a couple kind of experiencing that? I think it's, it's, it's a multifaceted approach, right? So first of all, first and foremost, I always talk about, you know, have you done your blood work? What's your blood work at? Have you, have you hooked up with a naturopath? um, that specializes in, in hormones, because we need to figure out what's happening for you. Are you breastfeeding? Because, you know, your blood works probably going to look much different if you're breastfeeding than if you're not breastfeeding. And, and also examining this from like a primal perspective in that, um, yes, so many people and your, and your body is capable of having babies in a short period of time, but from a, nutritionally depleted standpoint, your body would prefer that you have at least two, a two year gap between babies, approximately two years, just enough time for you to replenish the mineral stores that were depleted during pregnancy, during birth and labor, and then during breastfeeding, right? Cause we know that our bodies give to baby before giving back to ourself. And so if we're touched out and our bodies are having these almost adverse reactions to our partners wanting closeness and intimacy, whatever that looks like, or whatever that means, we really have to think like, is this a protective factor? Are, are our bodies trying to say, no, 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 you are breastfeeding a little baby right now. Like we don't have time. We don't have the resources to have, get pregnant again. And therefore we're kind of resisting touch. So there's that level that there's that kind of like hormonal primal aspect of it. There's also the trauma, the trauma aspect. So I, I have this conversation so many times, more times than I would even like to boast about because it's not boast worthy. Um, but we're, we're seeing an increase in birth trauma. And so the more birth trauma that's being experienced globally, culturally, I mean, continentally, um, the more we're going to see it impact um, the, the sex lives of postpartum individuals. Because um, if anybody follows or has read the literature around how trauma is stored in the body, um, pieces like, you know, the body keeps scores is a great piece if you haven't read it yet. It, it essentially, um, Cole's notes tells us that even if we don't have accurate memory of a traumatic situation on a cellular level, on a, on a muscular level, facial, fascia, ligaments, tendons, on a, on a musculature standpoint level, our bodies remember the trauma that has happened to us, right? 
And so if our brains are associating traumatic birth through, you know, bullying, coercion, being told that you have to do something, um, unwanted cervical checks, feeling bamboozled by the, the individuals who are attending your birth and, and your baby coming into this world, then we're going to have, and, and sometimes even having this association with your partner not stepping in in the way that your brain would like in a protective way, right? Like I'm vulnerable here. I need you. I don't know how I need you. I don't know what I need you to say, but I just need you to protect me. And then partner not knowing where they, where they stand in, in amongst the crowd of, of professionals, not knowing what they're allowed to say, what they're not allowed to say, not knowing that their partner even wants them to speak up. And so there can be this residual animosity formed in those moments that lasts um, for quite some time until it's addressed. And so birth trauma and sex and intimacy are greatly linked to one another. Um, so if we can move through healing some of the birth trauma, chances are we can also work on repairing the intimacy within the relationship. But, you know, you do have to think like we birth these babies and there's, I mean, whether you have a cesarean or where you have a, have a, whether you have a vaginal birth, it's still in the womb space. And for the most part, our partners want to be uh, up close and personal with our womb space in some capacity. So having a partner that understands birth trauma, understands trauma in general and healing is, um, very unique. And so that's why I really encourage couples to come as a system to therapy so they can learn together what that looks like and how to move through it. Um, yeah, I don't even know what your original question was, but. I don't remember either, but I think you answered it or at least you gave us some really good insight. No, I think that's, that's really a good point about birth trauma and how that is so prevalent and it absolutely can impact the relationship and intimacy and sex. The other thing I was thinking as you were talking is even if there was no birth trauma, um, just this, the, the emotional changes that come after having a baby. Um, and I feel like sometimes when maybe we don't feel like our partner is stepping up in caring for the baby or they're not trying to understand our emotions and maybe we have depression and maybe we have anxiety and we just feel like maybe we don't feel safe with them. Can you talk a little bit about how like emotional safety um, plays into being able to be intimate and specifically be able to kind of feel comfortable and safe to have sex? Yeah. So it kind of, again, goes back to, um, Stephen C. Hayes, the founder of um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a great uh, model for intervention. Uh, he is stereotypically known to say, we have an old brain for a new world. Meaning, you know, some people call it your reptilian brain and versus your mammalian brain. But this idea that the amygdala takes over when we're feeling unsafe. Our amygdala is, is what is used when we are um, thinking about uh, protecting ourselves, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. Um, and when we interact with our partner and our, we are, view our partner as a threat, our brain goes into this protective capacity, right? And the thing about our brain is that 
it doesn't understand new world threats. It only understands primal threats. So it can't tell you or it can't decipher between, you know, a bear attacking you and your partner leaving his dirty socks in the middle of the hallway for the 700th time after you've told him how aggravating that is for you. And now you feel so unappreciated, so disrespected, so unheard. Um, and so your brain just goes into, that's a threat, he's a threat, protect yourself. And when we think about how we've evolved as a culture as homo sapiens even, we've gone from this place of living very animalist animalistically and the best word that I can use to describe that time period would be cave people um, where we didn't necessarily have the vocabulary and the language that we have today, but we, like, like I said, we lived animalistically. And so the female of the species, um, there was no such thing as consent when it came to sex and intimacy, right? So um, just like you would watch a, a nature documentary, let's say um, males can potentially become very violent and aggressive when they get indications that a female is ovulating. And so if we think back to that time, um, the female species essentially began to learn that that sex and intercourse and reproduction meant that there could potentially be violence and danger and death associated with sex. And so our brains as females learn to scan an environment for both physical safety and emotional safety. And so if our brains don't assess for physical or uh, don't assess positively for physical or emotional safety, then it doesn't allow, it, it, it perpetuates this protection mechanism that we need to stay in fight or flight. We need to stay guard up, sticks present, protect our body, protect ourselves. When there are no threats present, then we have this opportunity to move into our parasympathetic state and in into our rest and digest, our relaxation, right? And essentially, this is the state of being that we want to be in um, when we are engaging in sex or desire or any kind of intimacy, this kind of like unlocking of relaxive state of being. And if our partners are constantly putting in our way these obstacles that our brains are viewing as threats, we, are, we don't even get a chance to relax. Relax, just relax. Um, and so therefore, we, we can't move into this state of vulnerability and even arousal. And when we think about even sexual experiences and how vulnerable sex can be from the standpoint of like receiving pleasure and what that involves and what that entails. And I know so many women that have talked to me that have said like, I will, I will give my husband pleasure. I don't want pleasure back. And it's kind of like, is it that you don't want pleasure back? Or is it that receiving pleasure is so vulnerable and you have to succumb to um, the situation and just kind of allow yourself to surrender and surrendering in and of itself is very vulnerable. And if as women and as mothers, we constantly have these threats because we, we have to on this, other, on this other level too, we have to think about as a new parent, 
yes, you, there should be alarm bells going off constantly because we are trying to protect our infant that has no ability to protect themselves. And so if they have no ability to communicate where there's threats or, or even understand or interpret that threat, it's our job to assess for threats constantly to make sure that they're safe. So operating in this state of fight or flight with an infant, mother-infant dyad, and then having a partner who's not understanding of what's happening and not able to interpret the environment to um, assess equally for the threats that their partner might be seeing is going to cause so much communication of unsafety that like women just can't get there. They just can't get there. And, and I really think that if we had a better understanding of, of the nervous system in our bodies and what our bodies need and our partners did, then we would be able to move to this place of, I'm, I'm okay with surrendering. I'm okay with receiving pleasure. I'm okay with sitting and having a conversation with you that's really vulnerable and my emotions aren't going to be attacked. My thought process isn't going to be attacked. And when I feel seen and validated and heard and understood, then I can like slowly, slowly graduate to this place of physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. I love that. So it sounds like, I mean, really, if you're experiencing this, some sort of couples counseling, is probably going to be the most helpful starting place. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, I guess, maybe to have partner begin to understand their role in that kind of emotional safety. Um, but then beyond that, so when we were, for those of you who don't know, Ashley and I did a webinar on this topic a while back and it's in my Infant Foundations e-course and it was an amazing conversation. And I remember you talking about how to kind of like, become more vulnerable with your partner when maybe that has been a struggle for you. And I think you talked about like these bids for bid for connections. Was that the term? And I wonder if you could talk on that. Cause I loved that. I thought that was so, so helpful. Um, <laughs> sometimes I like store things away in my brain and then I forget what I said and where I was at when I talked about something. It might not have been bid for connections that I feel like I'm making that up from something no, else. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. It was, um, John got Gottman Gottman. Yep. yep. Um, you were talking about him. You were talking, like, I remember you talking about how you could just like, I don't know, maybe make a, make a note in your phone to text your partner at the same time every day. And just like send a kind of, I love you. or I'm thinking about, you know, and like just simple things like that are kind of a good starting point to get back to that, um, safety and feeling vulnerable with your partner. Yes. And so essentially that's what I, that since we just had, um, Valentine's day pass. And so I thought it was a good opportunity to communicate those kinds of things to, to the population and say, you know, things might be rocky, but we can't expect to just, you know, the calendar flips over on February 14th and suddenly now all this uh, amazing stuff is happening and we're supposed to be okay with it. Right. So we, so I, I thought up, you know, let's do the 12 days of romance challenge. So what you're talking about day one, the instruction was complete a small or large task that is a burden to your partner. This could be filling their car with gas, making the kids lunches, folding laundry, cleaning the bathrooms, or cleaning out their car. 
And so depending on, um, I mean, not even depending on love languages, but obviously if someone's love language is acts of service, that's going to hit home a little bit more, right? Um, but just kind of to say like, hey, I know this is important to you. I'm going to do this for you. I don't expect anything in return, but here, let's, let's, let me show you that I'm, I want to take something off your plate. Day two is exactly what you just uh, mentioned. Setting alarm on your phone once in the morning and once in the afternoon. And when this alarm goes off, you send your partner a text message letting them know you care. You can try texts like, you're such a hard worker and we are so lucky to have you in our lives. And I think that we kind of go on this into this like state of autopilot where it's kind of like, well, you know, you know, I love you. Like I'm here, aren't I? I'm still married to you, aren't I? We're still in a relationship. We still live in under the same house. But again, from like this very primal place, we need more than that. We need an attempt made to say, I'm here, I love you, I see you, you're important to me. And 90% of couples that come to couples therapy they really suck at active listening. The majority of people in the world suck at reflective and active listening. And it's so amazing how when you ask a, a couple to sit down and practice the skill of active listening to just, you know, you don't have to agree with what the other person is saying. You do not have to agree with the other person. You just have to summarize what you heard them say, validate their experience and empathize with them but that does not mean that you have to agree. So I could say, you know what, that sounds like you, it sounds like you, um, okay. So if I know my partner is a distracted driver and text and drive, let's say illegal, but let's say I knew that, uh, and they were in a car accident or they had a fender bender where they rear-ended someone, my immediate response might be something like, um, I can't believe you did that. You're such a distracted driver. You, you knew this was coming. Now we have to pay this, blah, 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 blah. I think that that would be a lot of people's initial response. However, if you decided that you could summarize their experience based on what they told you and validate their experience, you could say something like, it sounds like there was something really important that you had to deal with. And, and the minute that you looked down, you know, before you knew it, the person slammed on their brakes and you had rear ended them and there wasn't really much you could do in that time frame. Maybe that was, uh, it, it sounds like it was, it was really difficult for you and scary. And you kind of knew right then and there that, um, you know, the person would be getting out and having a conversation with you and, and confrontation, you know, is not your strong suit. So I can imagine that felt really scary for you too. You don't have to say that, you know, oh, it's okay. You didn't do anything wrong. That's not what we're saying here. All we're saying is that you're creating the safe space for the partner to say, uh, to feel heard and validated. And so when we're talking about things like bids for connection and meeting each other in this vulnerable place, um, we really have to examine how often our egos become involved in conversation with our partner and what's the goal? What's the goal of this conversation? What's the goal of what's coming out of your mouth right now? Are you trying to prove that you know better? Are you trying to gain power and control over a situation? Are you trying to punish or shame the other person in hopes that they um, 
begin to sh change their behavior because we know shaming and punishing does not change behavior, whether a two-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, right? Um, so bids for connection are really opportunities to turn towards each other and say, you're important to me. I see you. I hear you. I know we've had a rocky day or a rocky week or, you know, a rocky past three, five, six years, but I, I see you and I hear you. I love that. This is something I struggle with so much. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, um, I'm always like drawing these parallels between your relationship with your partner and relationship with our children and respectful parenting, because it's the same concept. Like it's really not much different at all. And if we don't want to shame and scold and yell at our children, and we want to collaborate with them and hear them and see them and problem solve with them and help them learn for next time, like really the same things are true of what would be best to, or how best to respond to our partner in times like that. Um, because like you said, we know that shaming and, um, you know, scolding and punishments really don't work to teach anybody anything. So it's, I have really started thinking about my relationship with my partner in the same way that I think about my relationship with my children. Um, because it's interesting how in the past and sometimes still, but in the past, especially my responses to my toddler versus my response to my husband when he's having a hard time are so, so different. Um, and on the one hand, it kind of makes sense if like, if you're not thinking too hard about it, because we expect adults to like have self-regulation and like no right from wrong. And, but on the other hand, when we really think about it, we're all little children underneath. And a lot of us grew up in homes where we weren't heard and seen and we were punished and spanked. And so really a lot of us are like these little children who just need to be seen and heard and loved, um, regardless of what they do. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. This idea of we, we all have inner child wounds and chances are that we chose partners who at one point maybe like soothed us, helped, helped to like co-regulate us. And then eventually we learned that they were also our trigger. And as you're talking about this, this idea of um, you know, we're all little children inside. Um, it's very interesting to have a conversation with a couple to say, you know, when you reacted like that, you know, you heard your wife say that you were an idiot and that you were stupid. And like, how could you let this happen? And you reacted by, you know, throwing your phone across the room, let's say which sounds very violent, but it has happened before. Um, and it's kind of like in that moment, what version, what younger self, what version of your younger self came out? And, and when was a time in your childhood that when you were frustrated and you didn't have the words, you would throw things or you would destroy things or you would take your frustration and your anger out on inanimate objects? And if it comes out something like, you know, when I was like seven years old, I used to do that a lot. I got in a lot of trouble for doing it at school or I would get, you know, sent to my room a lot. Okay. So in moments of feeling dysregulated, you know, what would your seven-year-old self need? Well, you know, something I really saw from my cousin, from my aunt, let's say my aunt would do this for my cousin. My aunt would just kind of like bear hug my cousin and tell my cousin that, you know, 
what, what I had to say was important. And, um, you know, we would have, they would have a talk and then we would have like ice cream after to make everybody happy. And it's, and I'd say, oh, okay. So it sounds like, you know, there's things that your partner could be doing to help you in those moments. But if your partner's not regulated, then obviously they can't show up for you and help co-regulate you. So what can you do to kind of soothe that seven-year-old inside of you? What can you do? It sounds like ice cream is like a big piece to that. And interestingly enough, if we want to talk about the nervous system and ice cream, um, just having cold things in your mouth or near your vagus nerve can help tone your vagus nerve, which helps uh, your nervous system regulate itself. So I find it very mm -hmm. interesting that, um, children and ice cream minus the sugar component, obviously, um, can sometimes go hand in hand, but, uh, yes, that's kind of like off, off topic. That's but. interesting though. I just bought an ice cream maker. So now I have <laughs> a good reason not to return it. <laughs> I need it to soothe myself and my children. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So what happens when, what would you suggest for a couple who is struggling with intimacy? Maybe husband really wants to have sex. Like that's super important to him. Wife, woman isn't feeling, feeling that, um, yeah. maybe having a hard time being vulnerable. What are, I mean, where do they start? Where do they start? Because I think, you know, you've talked before in our past conversation about how it's, and we've talked about it a little bit here too. It's not just about sex. Um, so where can they kind of start to be more comfortable with each other, be more intimate, and then hopefully lead into sex in the future when they're ready? Yeah. Um, I really like using, not that I condone having emotional affairs by any means, but I find it very fascinating to um, dissect situations where there, where women, women in particular have had emotional affairs, what happens? And it's usually like this predictable template, right? Woman has been on maternity leave for however long goes back to work. It's usually somebody from work. They pay attention. They ask them questions, you know, tell me about your kids. Tell me about your maternity leave. What's the hardest, what was the hardest part? You know, um, tell me about the drama with your in-laws. Tell me, tell me, tell me, I want to learn. I want to learn. I want to have conversation. I want to ask you questions about you. And so if a woman has felt unappreciated, unseen, unheard, and now is having all of those needs met on an emotional level, feeling like a human again, it's a very slippery slope from, from a perspective of like loyalty and commitment in your relationship, right? Um, and, you know, the woman might go home and say, why don't you ever, why don't you ever pay? Why don't you ever ask me how I'm doing? Why don't you ever care about what I have to say? And again, it's like that shame and scolding, which, kind of that counter will kicks in and the husband or, or the male will, will dig his heels in and say like, you know, screw you. I don't know if you're going to be like that. Why would I even want to ask? If you're going to tell me that I have to ask, why would I even want to ask? And so, you know, there's this cliche saying of like, go back to dating your partner. Well, you know, you don't have to go on dates, but just think about and capture those 
moments within like the courting of the relationship where things were probably in the best place that they have been in your relationship. You were getting to know each other. You were asking questions. You were um, really listening and paying attention. You weren't distracted on your phone. You weren't busy watching the football game. It was more or less like, I'm trying to get to know you. I want to know the bigger picture and the whole thing. And we kind of take that for granted when we've been in a relationship with someone for so long, we assume that we know everything about them. And motherhood is so interesting because you're evolving. The person that you were before you had children is not the person that you are today. And sometimes this evolute, this internal evolution is kind of like, we don't even recognize it's happening until we're on the other side of it. And so, you know, Valentine's day comes and your husband brings you an orchid and you're looking at the orchid and you're saying like, yeah, like that was a flower I liked when I was 21 years old, but like now I really love roses. Now I really love roses. And so like, why doesn't he know that? Well, he doesn't know that because we don't talk about what things I like and we don't talk about what things he likes or he just talks at me about the things that he likes and doesn't actually ask me what I like. And so if we're gonna look at this from like, how to take accountability, because this is the other piece, is that chances are it, it's the female partner coming to, um, in a heterosexual relationship, it would be a female partner coming to therapy and saying like, I'm not happy, my husband doesn't, my partner doesn't pay attention to me, blah, blah, blah. How do I get him to do A, B, and C? Well, again, like with parenting, you have to mentor it. If you want your partner to learn how to actively listen and he won't come to therapy, then you start actively listening. Start going out of your way to make a point, to reflect, to summarize, to, to validate, to empathize with them. And chances are eventually they'll catch on. And the barrier to doing this is any resentment that you have. And so if a couple is coming together to say, listen, we know we have a problem and we need to work on this, let's start from square one. Let's get to know each other. And one of the suggestions I made for the 12 days of romance challenges to download the Gottman Institute uh, app called card deck. I want to say the Gottman card deck love maps. Um, and in there, there's a series of card decks um, and all different topics. Some just very basic, like who was your childhood best friend? What was the street that you grew up on when you were eight years old or whatever? And then it goes all the way up into like super spicy sex questions that maybe you've never felt comfortable asking before, even though you've been married to this person for the last 15, 20 years. That's really helpful. Yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, it's, it's so hard. It can be so hard when you obviously, especially when you have a new baby, um, in the mix to find that time to connect and everything seems to revolve around the baby and the house, the cleaning and the chores. And like, it, it can become so automatic in your relationship. Like you're just going through the motions to like, take care of the kids and take care of the house and take care of the finances. And it's like, you don't, it's hard sometimes to just stop and spend time to actually have fun with each other and connect with each other. And so, you know, what I have found helpful, what we found helpful, um, 
we don't go on a lot of like dates because we co-sleep and like, we like to be with our kids at night and we also like to sleep and we don't like being out late. So it's just not for us, but like even just having, setting it aside evenings, um, after the kids are asleep, like even if, if we're just like having something to eat together and watching something or just like sitting on the couch and talking, but like being really intentional about it rather than every night we each just go and do our own thing, you know, um, which does happen a lot, but like setting aside, you know, one evening a week or something to do that has been so helpful for my marriage. Um, and I think that that has also helped with, I mean, it's, it's helped with the intimacy piece, but it's also helped with like the sex piece because like, and I'm just going to get real, like real personal here, but hope my husband doesn't mind, but we've had struggles in our marriage where, I didn't really want to have sex because there was no connection. I felt so disconnected. We were always just talking at each other. We were going down the to-do list and never spending the time to connect with each other. And so then when he would be like, hey, you want to have sex? I'm like, no, we haven't even talked to each other, really talked to each other in weeks. But then being intentional about actually spending evenings together not every evening, um, but just like one evening a week or so talking with each other, watching something together, just like snuggling a little bit, touching in that way. So that's intimacy there. Um, has been so helpful in that because then I don't feel like resentful towards him when he's now all of a sudden he wants to spend time with me just because he wants to have sex, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And you bring up a very good point when it comes to connectedness. Um, we scientifically, we know about, uh, the, the impact of a six second kiss and a 20 second hug. And again, if we kind of go back to what happens to kids, if you kind of just, if they're, if they're really dysregulated, but they want closeness and you offer like a deep pressure hug, sometimes depending on the kid, you can feel them kind of like melt into your arms. They might like put up a fight for the first couple seconds. And then you can just kind of, again, feel them surrender. And that has to do with the oxytocin release that happens and the science behind a 20, a 20 second hug is very similar. And so if we kind of, um, begin the project of connectedness with each other in like a fake it till you make it type mentality, where it's like, we have to do this 20 second hug. Okay, fine. We didn't do our 20 second hug today. You know, usually 10 seconds in you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. I kind of actually like this. This actually feels good. And similarly with the six second kiss is that if you let a kiss linger enough, things might feel a little bit more intense and intentional than if you just do a quick peck. So if there are couples that are saying like, oh, we do is watch Netflix together at night, or we just like scroll through the TV and don't end up actually watching anything. Some, some couples can feel like talked out at the end of the day, it can feel like I have nothing to say. We just, you know, we both work from home. We just spent all day together. I have nothing to say to you. That's totally fine. And these are instances where I say, let the body do the talking, right? Let your body talk. You don't have to have sex, but just think about touch and intentional touch. Think about what would it feel like to sit closer on the couch to your partner? What would it feel like if you were able to sit in a way where, you know, they wrapped their legs around you, you sat in between their legs and you kind of, even if you played on your phones, but that's the positioning that you were in. 
Um, if you sat intertwined with your feet in some capacity, if you were spooning on the couch, what does that feel like? Just making more. And I, I find it very interesting when couples are given homework to do this, it feels less vulnerable, right? Because the rejection piece um, is less triggering. If, if nobody told you to do this and you went up to your husband and you said like, can I kind of just like get in here and, and sit between your legs? And he said, what do you No, No, my back hurts. Like, no, I don't want to no, this is not working for me. This is not comfortable. You're going to feel that wave of rejection and be like, oh, I'm not never doing this again. But if you go to therapy and a therapist says, listen, you two, you're going to be doing your touching in some capacity on the couch, on the floor, wherever, while you're watching TV tonight, I don't care what it looks like. As long as your bodies are intertwined in some way, then when you approach your partner to say, you know, we're supposed to do this homework. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's less opportunity for rejection and it feels less personal. So like you were saying, just spending time together talking, or if you're talked out, just being with each other, snuggling on the couch. And I think that we take this for granted. You know, we talk about something so simple as touching when you're driving in the car, you know, I, I'm personally think I'm a better driver than my husband. Um, but I, I prefer him to drive. I think it's probably because decision fatigue and driving is too many decisions. So if I don't have to do it, I don't want to do it, but it's, it's an opportunity, even with a backseat full of kids crying babies and a yelling five-year-old, like we still can connect and he'll reach for my hand and I will put my hand on the back of his neck and rub the back of his neck. And I can see, I, I can just see his face and I can see his body just move to this place of like safety and he'll squeeze my hand harder. He'll let his hand linger on my lap a little bit longer. Or if he takes it away, he's more likely to put it back where it was, uh, back on my lap. And so even those moments of connectedness, even stopping in the middle of your busy day while there's chaos in the kitchen and the smoke alarms going off to kind of just like grab your partner and say, I love you and smile. And they're like, yeah, 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 no, no. I love you. Oh, okay. I love you too. And having that moment of connection, that's intimacy. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where so many couples have to start there, especially after having a baby um, and forget about just like, don't just skip to sex right now if that doesn't feel right for you. Cause that can just make things so much worse. If you're like trying to force something that you're just not ready for, or you're not feeling, I feel like that can put a lot of pressure on the relationship too, when you're doing something and not enjoying it, or it becomes a chore, um, and definitely can create resentment and all of that. Okay. I really want to talk about co-sleeping and like, so this is a common question I get, like skipping, you know, past all of the intimacy, intimacy stuff. We've already talked about how to foster it, but actually just like the logistics of if you're bed sharing or co-sleeping with a child, with a baby, um, a lot of couples have a hard time finding like time and space to actually have sex and be intimate. Do you have any advice for those parents? Yeah. Yeah. And I think even the last time we chatted was before I had the twins. So like, it's again, things have changed. <laughs> things have changed. 
and uh, and interestingly, like I co-sleep with one of the twins now, and the other one just sleeps in her own crib, and that's where she's happy sleeping, and she just likes that kind of space. But my husband sleeps in my son's queen size bed in his room, so we both co-sleep in different rooms, and that's how we do it too. Yeah, and it works. Like for sleep wise, like it just works, it just mm-hmm. works. And so, but that kind of rocks this definition or this, or this, um, assumption that like sex has to happen in bed. There can't be any association with children. And, and for a lot of people, this is like a a headspace thing, like not being able to have sex with your child in the room or child in the bed. Like that's no, that's okay. Like if you're a trauma survivor and there's association with that, that's completely understandable. However, you kind of have to get creative if that's going to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that might look like, are the kids napping? Can we bring the uh, baby monitor to the basement, to the living room couch, to the car, if it's not too cold, or if there's the ability for space? Like, how can we make the most of the environment? Can we pop into the shower together when um, the babies were really, really small and they were sitting in their vibrating chairs and didn't really move much. It was easy just to kind of put some music on, put them in their vibrating chairs. And then I could kind of go and do whatever I needed to do in the next room or close by with their chairs turned the other way, let's say. Um, so I think it's just about redefining your definition of sex, first of all. So, you know, even if, you're not in the mood for sex, but your but your partner would like some kind of sexual stimulation. Can you offer that in the shower together, or if he's in the shower and you're doing your makeup and can reach through the shower curtain or something along those lines, right? Um, think about just just think about a lot. Maybe even setting a space up. Maybe there is. Um, space in your cold, dingy basement to put a really decent, comfy couch. And that's where you are intimate with each other. Um, Otherwise, there's nothing wrong with being sexual with your partner in bed while you are bed sharing, as long as it's done safely and baby is safe, um, or room sharing for that matter. I mean, there does get to be a certain age where there might be some acknowledgement of what's happening and that's up to you whether or not that makes you feel comfortable. But for the most part, I think it can happen if you open your mindset to allowing it to happen. Yeah, for sure. And I think it really is just about being creative too. I mean, I know like with my kids, once they were a few months old, like in the bed with them, it just wouldn't work because they're, they just wake up. Um, but also, so I've had this question before a couple of times is, well, we live with our family or my parents. And so we never have any privacy. Well, that is even like, that could be a really great opportunity in some situations. If your family is willing to help, because all you have to do is be like, Hey, we didn't sleep well last night. Could you watch the baby for 30 minutes? And we're going to go take a nap. And then you can go into your room and do whatever you want. Like, totally. yeah, I mean that that's perfect. Right. Or like, Hey, we're going to go get ready. Like I'm going to take a shower. We're going to take a shower, you know, whatever, like that, that might be the ideal scenario. Maybe not in every situation, but if you're, whoever you're living with is, is willing to watch the kids for, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. Um, but yeah, getting, <laughs> getting creative because intimacy isn't only about sex, but then sex also 
doesn't only happen have to happen in the bedroom on the bed at night. No. And what, and asking your partner, what's your expectation? Like, is the expectation that we're having sex once a week or is the expectation that we're having sex once a day? Because once a day is going to limit your ability to find windows of time in your day. But once a week feels like, okay, you know, in-laws live across the street or in-laws live with you being able to say, on a Friday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon, like you do want to take a nap. Fantastic. That feels very doable once a week. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem strange or you're not, you know, burdening anybody by asking them to watch the kids once a week for half an hour. Right. The other thing I would say too, is, you know, I am a big, like a big advocate for limiting screen time. Uh, We don't do a lot of screen time here, but if you have to, like, if it's, if it's about your marriage and being able to find the time to be intimate with your significant other, um, that is a really, that's a pretty good reason to utilize screen time for a few minutes. If you need to, like, if you have an older, like a toddler who's safe to be left in the other room, watching TV for 20 or 30 minutes, that is the time during the week that you should turn the screen time on. If that is your only opportunity. Totally. And baby gates are wonderful for that because like they get stuck at the gates and then they can't, you, they can't mm-hmm. get to you to open the door. And even my five-year-old's like, I can't open the gate. I'm like, okay, okay. Like we literally have two minutes here. Like, let's go. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Yep. Well, Ashley, this has been amazing. So helpful. I'm so glad that you joined me for this. Thank you so much. Can you tell people listening where they can find you um, and what resources, if any, you have for parents or for people? Yes. So uh, right now on Instagram, which is probably where I'm most active is mindonlinetherapy.ca. And my website is www.mindonline.ca. Resources I have for parents. Yes. In terms of literature. So I always go to literature first. Um, it's not necessarily sex related, but I have two pieces of literature. I highly recommend. Um, the first one is a book titled good moms have scary thoughts. And what I find is that women who have had birth trauma are at an increased risk of having intrusive thoughts and anxiety, which is going to create a huge barrier with intimacy with their partner. Um, So that's a great read. And uh, another great read is uh, why birth trauma matters. And so both of those kind of tackle it from the um, birth trauma perspective, which might not always be the case, but I always encourage people to kind of do a little bit of digging into birth trauma because sometimes it's a matter of like, oh, I didn't realize because I heard a story of, you know, so-and-so down the road who had way worse outcome than I did. I didn't think mine was traumatic, but we can't compare traumas in, in this form of like oppression Olympics, so to speak. So um, your brain doesn't know what so-and-so down the road experienced. Your brain only knows what felt unsafe for you. And if it felt unsafe, uh, chances are there's, there could be a component of trauma involved. And so digging a little bit deeper into your birth experience and trauma and how that would impact your intimacy with your partner is super important. 
Um, also digging into listening to podcasts around the polyvagal theory and understanding the vagus nerve and how to uh, go about finding safety within your body and communicating safety to your partner would be really important as well. Mm-hmm. Great. And you do take virtual clients, right? In Canada. Yeah. Right. So if you are in Canada, you can um, work with Ashley. If you're not in Canada, you can still message me and I can figure out a way to help you or point you in the right direction. Yeah. Great. And I will, I will put your website and Instagram and all of that in the show notes. So y'all can find that easily. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. It was great talking to you about this again. Thank you, Taylor. I'm so glad that you're having these amazing conversations with people. They're so important. Mm Many of y'all know that I'm really passionate about non-toxic living. And one of the things that I decided was important for our family to make the change to, the transition to, was the the products that we're sleeping on. So our mattresses, our bed sheets, et cetera, because we spend so much time in our sleep space during the day that I want to make sure we're not laying on harmful chemicals or breathing in harmful chemicals. So I have found the best, most comfortable bed sheets, Simply Organic Bamboo Sheets. They are eco-friendly, 100 organic bamboo sheets. They are designed for comfort and breathability. So they're heavier than your typical cotton sheets, but they don't feel hot. They're actually really cool. So they're good for all seasons. They're also antibacterial and hypoallergenic, totally natural and non-toxic, and they are so soft and so luxurious. They're so silky smooth. I love them. Whenever I am traveling or I just for whatever reason don't have my bamboo sheets on the bed, I miss them so much because they are seriously so comfortable. And you can save 25% off. So visit simplyorganicbamboo.com slash Taylor and use the code Taylor to save 25% off your purchase, making these an amazing deal. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.